Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Day four? Day it's five? Friday, so. No hot D? Yeah. Day five, no hot D. How's everybody feeling? Well, we watched the episode like three minutes ago, so I'm feeling renewed. We're not, <laughs> we're not too far gone yet. It's going to really hurt in about two weeks. Yeah, we're still dripping wet from those storms and uh, storms. <laughs> just can't, they just go everywhere. You really can't control that stuff. <laughs> I've been hungry since watching that Vegas scene, seeing, <laughs> seeing him get a nice bite to eat. The sideways swoop. <laughs> like yeah. From the cutscene mm-hmm. of an adventure game. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, don't do that. Someone down on Storm's End is going to get some tasty wings. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Uh, there's Delicious so many pieces wings. that are falling to the ground. Like, somebody's going to see that and it's going to be a problem. Those dragon bones are worth a lot. Like, wing bones, you just throw that away. But dragon bones, you're like... Put in your pocket, you know, you're like, eat yeah. all the meat, stick it in your pocket. Mm. The Dothraki use the dragon bones for their hunting bows, and they are a exceptional range with them. It's true. I wouldn't argue with that. In the, the world of Westeros, do you think that those are the best bows, or do you think that something like Golden Heart might be better? I think Golden Heart is slightly better or is it i think it's dragon bone as they said is what i think they said dragon bone is better it's just i think only golden golden heart's the only thing that's like close to it close to it but only and bones are and and it's the one that's most disseminated because the dragon bone bows are like super rare yeah maybe not super rare but rare like we've seen seen two maybe i maybe one we saw the one that she gave to her blood rider yeah and he still has it presumably he's still around but Hmm. uh that's the only one i know of there's probably more. I mean, we hear Illyrio is like a dragon bone dealer. It yep. just doesn't come up much or at all, <laughs> except for saying that he is. In fact, I don't even know he said it. It might have been Tyrion that said that. <laughs> T- Tyrion, when he is going to the wall, he reads a book called The Properties of Dragon Bone. Oh, yeah. That's right. <clears throat> so the level up from that would be a dragon bone bow from the proper Valyria era that's been imbued from the sorcery. Maybe an enchanted version. Usually in most medieval, uh, I guess, hierarchies of the power and the distance, just the general attack points of, uh, like I said, this is all we're going to be able to talk about for the next couple of years, guys. We're going to have to literally (laughs) break everything down like this. Usually it goes um, the best uh, wood that there is. So let's call it Golden Heart or some kind of weird magical you or something. And then you'll go Dragon Bone. Dragonbone's usually above the best wood. Maybe there's some kind of enchanted wood between the two that's like a short bow that shoots faster mm. and uh, causes more damage really quickly but uh, has less distance. I um, think, yeah, we were always wondering about that. Like when Balerion died, they get that big-ass skull there, right? Like what to do with the rest of him? Mm-hmm. Over those bones. Like could that be <laughs> used off to- in a litter, like a royal litter? Could you oh. use his skull to be some kind of a capsule for the king to that travel during riots? Cool. Yeah, that would be wild. Shape of ankle bone into a cup or something and drink out of it, you know? I think hollow out like the toenail socket is what I think would be the best fit for that. <laughs> toenail. Just from, just from going glass. to museums. <laughs> nice goblet. You don't drink yeah. a fireball out of that. <laughs> I would, yeah. We're, uh, we're all together in town because we saw George R. R. Martin last night here in New York City at the Symphony Theater. We had a really great time. There was us, a bunch of other A Song of Ice and Fire folks were in the room, and George R. R. Martin was interviewed by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. It was a ton of fun. So we wanted to talk how that was, what the vibes were, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about Hot D just in general, get your guys' takes and thoughts now that, like you said, this is it for the next mm-hmm. year and a half. <laughs> so, but last night was a ton of fun. It was 
the first time that we'd all been in the same room since Ice and FireCon, I think, or a lot of folks were there. So it was yeah. great to see people. Always a treat to hear from George. Did we get some new info from him last night? Hard to say, but we had a good time. <laughs> what do you guys think? Did we get any new info? Like, actually new info? No, nothing really juicy. It was more anecdotal, and it was more just George and Neil, the chemistry between them. They had great vibes, and it, it was a bit more laid back, and it wasn't super. Like, Neil chose questions from the, from the audience that were quite generic and, you know, not sort of risky. So I think as a writer, he understands not to ask the, you know, when's the book going to be out and so on, the more pointed questions. So it's a bit more of a relaxed conversation than, you know, getting scoops from the nerd. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they talked about a few things that you wouldn't necessarily normally hear him talk about because, like you said, because he was with Neil and they talked about, like, things that only successful authors could commiserate about <laughs> you know like boy it sure is hard signing so many books like, they talk about that you know like your wrist just gets it makes sense like yeah you do thousands do you think of that his that hand way. really did swell up neil neil gaiman's hand from i believe doing, it damn. i believe it yeah. i mean just doing this repetitive thing like maybe george has better like uh technique you know mm-hmm. like i know that from my mother's a musician she, she talked about how important that is like if you do it properly you can do it you can just keep doing it but if you don't do it, if you have bad technique, your wrist will get sore, and then that'll cause you permanent problems long, long in the long run as a musician. So, like, these guys probably sign books as much as a lot of musicians play. <laughs> so oh, it's, that a, makes it's sense a sport to me that, for them. So we paid them to talk about that for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that George offered probably the best perspective I've heard him talk about, and because of that, probably one of the most educated and personally personally educated uh, perspectives on adaptations from literature to TV. That's a question that, or a a conversation that I wanted to have more in depth when we had him on our podcast and we didn't have enough time or the conversation didn't open itself up to enough for him to really say what he said last night. And I really thought that that was poignant, especially now being at the end of season one and everyone kind of celebrating hot D as something that was adapted really well, or at least creatively in a way that made it feel like it was worth adapting and then I guess that's choices of leaving stuff out or changing some things aside just as an adaptation. Do you guys think that Ryan and Miguel succeeded on the level that George maybe was talking about last night? And maybe I'm, this is to all three of you. And uh, how do you think George feels about it in general based off of what your vibe is? I, I think that he must, George must be very pleased with House of the Dragon. I think that it was clear that Ryan Condal tried to carry off the whole thing in George's spirit. And I, I think there's evidence that, you, you know, he, he Ryan really understood yeah, the spirit of the books. For example, he included a lot of prophecy work, which was absent from Game of Thrones. And it's a whole register to the storytelling that, yeah, w- was really missing. But... It's something that Ryan Condal valued very highly, and he kept playing with it. And the way he played with it, such as prophecies, lead, you know, leading to errors in interpretation and people, you know, drawing the wrong conclusions about them, is exactly in George's style. So I would say that he was paying close attention to the text and the subtext of the of the books. Do you notice how uh, 
just now in the inside the episode we were watching, he was still saying he wasn't sure whether or not Amond was sure about how he wanted to deal with uh, Jace and the dragon. And he's giving you the inside scoop on it. And he's still that act, that uh, interpretation of the different perspectives from Fire and Blood, still keeping up that act in a behind the scenes documentary. Yeah, that's cool. Like and last night, George got asked that question directly like, which is there a real version behind all this that you've obscured? Um, or did you just start with the obscurement and leave it there? And he said, yeah, the, the latter. He started with the obscurement and left it there. There is no true version. He didn't opt for that and thinks maybe that wouldn't be the right way to frame it, uh, to have that, because it's supposed to be left ambiguous and it's supposed to be written like real history and we're supposed to quibble, even when we see what happens, even when we know what happens, we quibble over it, we interpret it differently. So, I mean, not necessarily us, but (laughs) but people, (laughs) people do. And that, so if people are going to quibble about something that they all saw, well, then, of course, they're going to quibble about something that none of them saw in history, right? <laughs> you know, it's like things that make sense to them that don't make sense to other people. Yeah, we all, yeah, the idea of filtering it through our own experience and our own brains and, and our own unique perspectives is, you're right, that was really well captured and that was really important to capture. And I really like how much he talks about his experience with history and, write, and you know, this idea of trying to write history that's not really history. And he talked a lot about last night how he doesn't want to write historical fiction because he doesn't always like the way that history plays out. And so that conversation in, while also thinking about this broader kind of the way Fire and Blood was written and the way that the show was designed and carried out, hearing him talk about history that way, um, which I know we've heard that before, but I just find that very interesting to kind of be in his headspace. And so I think that that in context with how they managed to translate onto the screen, kind of like we we're saying, Ryan keeping the spirit of all that was really well done. It's definitely interesting when he talks about history, but he's a storyteller. So he views it, he loves history, but he views it through, through this lens of, you know, oh, it would make a better story if that guy didn't mm-hmm, die, which mm-hmm. is what he was talking about <laughs> last night. Yeah, um, it it fits really well to have not only those uncertainties, but to, as George put it, to kind of embrace the embellishments because that's what that does make it more. So we can acknowledge that, as he did last night, that that some of the details of the Scottish black dinner were added to make it sound cooler. But he's like, but that was a good choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's good to make it sound cooler. Especially if it's just adding and not changing the original. Like if you're just like adding some fanfare and adding some some music <laughs> and some a skull here or there. The fact is the the basic event still happened. There still was a an execution of these these lords or whatever. So but even when stuff is completely made up, that can still make for a good story. Uh, especially in a fictional environment, you're not worried about whether it's real or not. You know, you can, yeah, it doesn't matter if we're taking people away from the real historical record. Um, in, in real history, you don't want to do that. You want to try to be accurate, but this isn't real history, so we get to have more fun with it. <laughs> so, so George is just trying to improve history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> My question for you guys is, after watching House of the Dragon and reading Fire and Blood, while we were reading Fire and Blood, we were made to surmise a lot of things and come up with our own opinions, like we've been saying, about what happened because we didn't get that straight through narrative. So did watching House of the Dragon change any of your opinions on maybe a character or a situation? Did it bring to light something that maybe you thought of differently while reading Fire and Blood? I, I think 
my perspective is that you have to separate them. Okay, you've got the books, and it's complicated with three different stories, but I, I do view the show as made by a different person who wasn't always getting you know, notes from George. So I see that as Rondell's, Ryan Condell's product. Rondell. That's a good <laughs> yeah, Rondell, yeah, I like that. Yeah, Maine was born. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was certainly interesting to get the characters fleshed out. And I think that the, one, one takeaway from the show is that, you know, there was more to the Greens the, than mm. the, than the history book show. And whether Ryan got that correct is open for debate but there certainly was more to the story in in the reality of this world that than is said in the historical tome and a lot of that is the characterization yeah, yeah. i completely agree with that it's the characters they the way they filled in the blanks because that's what there was a lot of room to do i mean they didn't change that much in terms of events you know there was they kept they maybe moved some things around changed the timelines and some things but it was a pretty low impact as far as plot changes, but as far as fleshing things out that weren't fleshed out or that the kind of things that you wouldn't expect to be in a historical record, um, like it wouldn't, because his history book probably wouldn't mention that Viserys was into models. <laughs> but it might mention if he <laughs> had a real... At that scale, maybe, though. At that scale. <laughs> at that scale, maybe it would. Yeah, at that scale, maybe. <laughs> what sort of models was yeah. he into? <laughs> <laughs> but if you have... Someone like Damon having a bad temper, that that does impact his political decisions. So that does get into his trouble record. You know what I mean? Like those are the kind of things like if it affects history and decision making, then it tends to get in there. And if it doesn't, it it, it doesn't. So these are they did such a great job with adding the details that you could see fitting, mm-hmm. right? Without overwriting what was already there. And they, they did have a lot of room to play with it. So, But there's a lot of directions they could have gone. A ton of room. They could have easily made, you know, done done it poorly. You could easily see how certain characters could have been done improperly or gave off the wrong vibes or, or reacted in ways that we would find perplexing to certain events. But, yeah. And they didn't, and they didn't, uh, they didn't dumb it down. I think that was a worry from Game of Thrones as well that, you know, they, they they started doing things because they thought people wouldn't understand it if they didn't, right? And and that, I don't think it worked that well. I mean, There's maybe a lot of shots of the dagger, though. You have to give me that. <laughs> yeah, the dragon's eye. <laughs> and the dragon's eye in the promo art, it's yeah. it's like a sideways 2D version of the dagger. Yeah, that's With, so like, cool. no yeah, that's texture. The only, that's really the only, I feel like, heavy-handedness. It looks really good, though. Yeah. I just want to say the dragon eye looks good, and I agree with you too, Hannah, but it's still, I, it's I feel still like there. we have to say it. We have to at least acknowledge it for what it is. <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought it was a show that sort of expects its audience to be on the ball and smart, and, and like you say, they weren't sort of dumbing things down, and I think for for the hardcore fans, that's quite gratifying. I'm not sure about casual fans because I think they're very important too, so I'm not trying to like dump on them. But um, yeah, I wonder how it went down with people that aren't invested and if yeah. they understood it and they were able to follow. There's a lot of time jumps and it was very complex, so it would be interesting to have a conversation with a unsullied I'll give person. you my mom's phone number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> only for yeah. only you, old boy. <laughs> Something that I heard this week a lot from friends was that they felt like House of the Dragon was really slow, especially at the beginning. Like They felt like it took a little bit more time for them to 
buy into the whole thing because you've got a new cast of characters and the the TV show really plays itself out more like a book than it does in, you know, say season seven or eight of Game of Thrones. And so that was a piece of feedback I was hearing this week. Hmm. Yeah, I, I talked to some Unsullied folks too. We have uh, a, a roommate in my house and his girlfriend and they we've watched a few episodes with them. And he, the girlfriend hasn't seen the original show at all. So she's completely coming into new. And so she, she would have reactions Whoa. like episode two where – it's like the sea snake is talking to someone, and we're like, "Oh, she's, he's talking to Damon," and and then it pans over to him, or to him, and he reveals it's Damon. She's like, "Whoa, <laughs> Damon! Whoa, this is cool! Yeah, like, all right, this is a good." Like team he up, traveled you know? all the way there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was so funny. So that was neat. So like uh, that, uh, you're right. Like, there's some the time jumps are definitely going to be confusing to people and maybe a little off putting, but the numbers are so strong. They can't. That's not all core viewers. They're not like they're not getting 10 million views an episode off of just core viewers because there aren't, I mean, there can't be that many core viewers. So I think what they discovered is that, remember, think back to the first show when people were confused about some of the characters then too. They're like, <laughs> there's like 10 guys with beards and or 10, that's way under show, that's way under song. There's like 10,000 yeah. guys with beards and there were like the memes going around. Like they started to fade by like season three, four, five, but like first season there'd be like, you know, Wolf guy, you know, squid yeah. guy. Like uh-huh. they didn't have, they had nicknames for casual oh, viewers, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I say, I wonder if they were doing friend that zone. for this Sir one. Sir Friend Zone. This, yeah, sir, for Sir Friend Zone, yeah. Khaleesi was uh-huh. like, mm-hmm. remember when no one knew her name? It was just Khaleesi. Well, what, her name's not Khaleesi? What are you <laughs> <Yeah>. saying? <laughs> we're show so, only podcast. Thinking about that, there's a little bit, that, like trying to compare that to this, like where you get, uh, well, there's Joffrey and Joffrey. There's Viserys and Viserys, mm. there's Aegon and Aegon. And Aegon and Aegon. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Eric and Arik. Oh, God, then what a slap in the face. Vaymond, Aemond, and Damon. <laughs> and Grover. And Grover. Of course, Elmo. <laughs> and and then you have, like, the most standard name, like, the most, like, real-world name of all, Otto, right? <laughs> mm, uh, rocket power, yeah. yeah. So I think it's fun because but, but I think the point of all that besides just having fun with all these names is I don't think it didn't seem to be a big problem for casual viewers, right? The Like the names. I don't know if that applies to other points of confusion, like being confused about plot elements is maybe worse than not knowing a character's name. But it seems like mild to even modest confusion isn't a big deal <laughs> to a lot yeah. of viewers yeah. as yeah. long as the rest is like engaging and like the performances are strong, right? I think even more so than GOT, people come into the scale of Westeros expecting to be a little silly, a little stupid, and, and, and kind of a let go of remembering people's names because they also know, especially if they're starting GOT, even if they started it around year three, which a lot of folks did, they they know they have like 30 hours ahead of them to get good at it. So it's just kind of a fun way to interact with it where you're just sort of uh, along for the ride. You're along for the ride and you take the pressure off yourself. You're like that guy who died. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think going into a new one, it was always a, a, a gamble. Were they going to lean into that and make it a spectacle or was it going to be a dank drama that also has well i guess not just com is going to say with touches of comedy but like a song of ice and fire and like got and like really anything good uh the the top tier television shows or movies they have uh this vein of something that's a very uh significant genre defining uh, characteristic of itself but it also shows like everything about being a human the funny stuff the sad stuff the real stuff the magnificent stuff the sneaky the friendly 
the heartfelt, the hopeful, the depressed. And uh, that's what's, you know, happening right now in Hot Deep. But I think going into it, we could know that people are going to be expecting a certain way to interact with Westeros. GOT being really the defining television show of the teens and about how we all sum up online culture. Rather, it sums up online culture. It did sum up online culture. It it defined online culture. So there was this... uh, chance the whole time was this just going to be a, a facsimile of that same thing before and like a, a sort of a victory lap a masturbatory celebration of uh, what the potential of this new thing could be or is it going to happen again naturally and it seems to me I don't know if it's wishful thinking we basically in this conversation been been sitting here and been saying that it happened naturally do you guys really believe that it did that that uh the love and the respect for it is uh from a place of its own origin or is it left over from before or is it just relief that it doesn't suck i think obviously it was a show that was benefiting from the popularity of its predecessor but it could have crashed and burned so easily and like like aziz was saying you wouldn't be getting the numbers you'd be getting a lot of people that were giving up mid-season i don't think that was the case it was maintained it grew remember after the first episode aren't a lot of people watching rings of power though right Sure. And you yeah, can't say well, the exact same thing for the Rings of Power. Yes. Uh, lots of people are watching it. Um, but just today I was reading how Amazon has not released viewership numbers on it, like full Ooh. viewership numbers on it. Like it said it, it, it said it was close to one of their milestones earlier in the season. And then it's kind of gone quiet on numbers since then. And in that same article, I read that Rings of Power is apparently doing poorly with younger audiences unlike House of Dragon which is doing really well. I think the quote was, <laughs> it was, it was on TikTok, the hashtag... House of Dragon had 7 billion views, and the hashtag Rings of Power was like three, 8 million. Jeez. Oh, it can't be 8 million. That's crazy. No, because they claimed they got 28, 29 million on episode one, right? No, this is TikTok. Well, TikTok. This is TikTok oh. views. TikTok hashtag views. So with the teens. So there's like 200,000 views if it's TikTok. There's no like hottie dances. <laughs> it was 80 power. Million, but it, maybe it was 80 million, but it was shockingly smaller than House of the Dragon. Like, like whoa, like orders of magnitude smaller. So why do you guys think that is? Why do you think that? Because Rings of Power was boring. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think that uh, the way that this book is being adapted and the last one too, uh, I mean, we talked about this a hundred million times, but it's for the sake of now in the framework of being right after George last night and right after season one of Hot D, why do you think that it's still working versus other stuff that's expensive and looks good and has great lore? I, I think George R. Martin is just at the peak of his powers and... The, the the source material is so strong and it's finished it, it, and it was just ripe for conversion into the visual media. But, you know, they still had a lot of work to do because it wasn't something that was going to be easily transposed. But, you know, that was the work and they'd done it successfully. So it, from the ground up, it's quality. There is no... There's nothing that you can criticize. Well, this person didn't know what they were doing just from the source material to, you know, the the final effects. Everything was in sync. And, yeah, maybe they benefited from all those years of doing Game of Thrones to sort of perfect and streamline the product and uh, feel like everyone involved in this show knows exactly what they're doing. And it's it, that, that's why you're getting such a high-quality TV show. I also think that you, with something like House of the Dragon, you get the high fantasy without being too like highbrow you know i think that for something like lord of the rings or rings of power the barrier of entry seems 
a lot steeper, especially because of the source material. Look at House of the Dragon. You can come in and I think they catered some of the show to you've never seen Game of Thrones before or you're being introduced to the Targaryens for the first time or this is a new thing for you. And so I feel like one of the strengths of House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones in general is the ability to have these intensely mystical themes. Like we're talking dragon dreams and we're talking mm-hmm. all the like prophecy Promise like we've been me. saying. <laughs> you know dragons and magical swords and you know all of the things that we love about fantasy without it being too snooty i guess and i'm not saying that lord of the rings is snooty in the slightest but you know what i mean like the it's a little bit more accessible i it's feel like to a newer audiences really it's a political drama you know it's a drama right. with, with fantasy elements it's not like yeah at the heart of it is a story about families so yeah, and just to compare, I don't want to compare too much about Rings of Power, but that did seem to lack focus. But you can say off the bat, this House of the Dragon is, you know, a familial drama and it's something we all recognize. Throw those fantasy elements in. And uh, I think you pull people in that may not otherwise have necessarily been inclined to consume fantasy. But like you say, the mix of the drama with a sprinkling of the fantasy and a few dragons has pulled people in from outside the you know the catchment area of the show yeah yeah i think that's a really good point the the relatability of the characters even if you're not we're not royals you know we they have the struggles of regular people like fighting over ownership of things that are belonging to a family like you know family squabbling over who gets the granddad's chair you know it's it's, this is a much more powerful chair in this case but uh you know that kind of thing could happen on a smaller scale but yeah like it's hard to relate or like uh, morpheth clark great actress but it's hard to relate to galadriel uh, an immortal being of thousands of lived thousands of years that you know exists in this realm of light right it's harder to it's a little harder to glom onto that as a character and that also that just permeated a lot of the rings of power a lot of characters that are cool and interesting but they're not as they're not that relatable the situations aren't very relatable um but when they add a few of the characters that were invented for that show did seem to be kind of relatable and i think they they showed that this those were some of the characters that got the best uh, acclaim uh, in that show so if it's it should kind of proves the point that that's what people want they need more relatability they need more um something to pick out of all this fantasy that uh, applies to them as well, something that you could understand. See, I can understand why this makes him sad, or I can understand why this is frustrating. It's not entirely clear. Like, for Gladriel, you're like, okay, she wants to revenge her brother. That makes sense, right? That, that's They can relate to that. But the methods and the, like, trekking through snow and fighting snow trolls is, to chase an immortal enemy. It's really cool, but it's different. It is hard to compare. Like, I'm, I'm with Yoke Boy that I don't want to over-compare them, but they're happened at the same time, so it's hard not to. <laughs> and they're so huge, and, yeah, you can't throw money at everything. Like, these, some of these things, they just have, they, it seems like they just had a better plan, and you said better source material. Is That's true, because they're not drawing the source directly. great for Rings of Power. That yeah. scene you're mentioning is in a place called Eregion that I used to look at on the edge of the map when I was a little kid, and yeah. the way they came out the gate swinging with this TV show was to literally show me one of the characters I've been seeing since I was a kid, but thousands of years in the past, as they were earning their stripes, climbing a fucking mountain <laughs> that was in cool. that region. I was like, holy crap, this is going to be my favorite <laughs> yeah. show of all time. You're the extreme target audience for Rings oh, of Power. Oh, for sure. For sure. But still, like, what That's a logistical saying, issue, right? Like, this is supposed to happen over a long period of time, which is hard to, like, a 10-year time jump 
is was that was hard to do. House of Dragon pulled it off, but it was hard to do. But like, had they done time jumps and Rings of Power, they would have had to have been a lot bigger. Man, I think the time <laughs> I think the time jumps in Hot D uh, did a favor for it because I felt like they did what basically the first four seasons or maybe three seasons of GOT did for folks of showing those different eras of the character that you like so much and how much their relationship changed with their sort of um, uh, antithesis to their character. Um, someone like uh, Rhaenyra versus Alicent or Damon versus Alicent or even Damon versus Viserys, you know, or uh, Viserys versus life itself. Uh, instead of waiting for a long time, uh, it's like they gave us a treat of you've been waiting for Game of Thrones to come back, so you're getting like three seasons right now. <laughs> and the time jumps were, I just thought, so well executed that I I liked it because of it. I don't want, I didn't want more time in any of the other periods in, in, in Hot D. I was like, I got enough of all these. I'm getting tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely more periods that I would have liked to have seen, but I thought that the time jump served to just skip us ahead a little bit further than the last time the show came around. It's like if your favorite author followed up, it's like if George wrote a new fantasy series, right? And it didn't take him till the end of the book for the dragons to come back or for feast or, or dance to come around for you to go, this is going to get uh you're on weird real quick. It's just <laughs> like if you knew super quick, cause he just knew how to get there faster. Yeah. I felt like they used the time jumps to get us all there as an audience faster. And then this is ideal for them. I don't know if it's successful for everyone, but I know for all you guys, you guys are, you guys are crazy. <laughs> you guys love this show. So they, they, they convinced <laughs> you guys to like it. So mm -hmm. I hope that everyone, I'm, I'm wondering if everyone else was tricked in the same way to start talking about these characters like we've been watching them for years, like the other <laughs> show. People are doing that, you know? Yeah. They really are. And I, I think that familiar already. Yeah. Yeah. And like you're saying with the time jumps, it's, that could have been really jarring. That could have broken the season. You know, it could have been, people could have been really confused. But I think people, love this universe so much they're willing to put up with a bit of complication and I, I also think that they handle the time jumps very smoothly considering they're bringing new actors and so on and so on and that they have carved out this generational story and well we're over the time jumps now mm -hmm. and the jarring thing was when we went back to the, the day slowing down, like the last three episodes were like over three days. And it was like, oh my God, you know, it used to be like 10 years each time. <laughs> Did you guys think that maybe those felt like the best versions of a GRM chapter adapted to HBO without the constant interruption of going to different locations and it not being focused around a battle? It just really felt like, you know, how you start in Marine with Danny. And it's like Hisdar is going to visit today, and you're like, okay, well, that's going to be something. And then <laughs> someone someone pulls you off to the side, and they go, well, I have a lot of stuff to talk to you about. And then you start thinking about everyone that's interacting with that problem, <laughs> like the Green Graces are talking to Barristan. That's crazy. And then eventually you deal with Hisdar, and then there's the falling action of your meeting with Hisdar. That's basically what each of those Queen episodes were. Mm -hmm. They were. Uh, the sense of space of dealing with the governance of the problem at the time. And I just felt like, well, give me more of this. Give everyone. This is like a Mad Men episode. It was like, I woke up this morning and I have to do a pitch later today. And my wife's giving me trouble. And one of my kids faked sick and he's staying home from school and I got to deal with all of it. And we got that <laughs> at the end of something that was jumping 10 years in between episodes. Yeah, I agree. It, it did make a lot of sense to 
frame it primarily between the two queens and the prince and the king as well would be, you know, just almost as primary, I suppose you could say. But yeah, they're the the driving force. And as, because they cast it so well and, and wrote such compelling character conflict for those two, everything just sprang out so well from that. And as readers, we were not surprised by the quality of Rainier's arc, right? I think that we were pleasantly surprised by how good the acting was. That's what I was impressed by. But we knew that that was a compelling character already. Allison, like a lot of the greens, as we've kind of talked about off and on in this episode, there's a lot of spots where the greens were like, Way more. This is way more interesting yeah. than we thought, and that, that's exactly. And they knew, and we knew that going in. That this is a core problem. The fandom massively prefers the blacks to the greens. It's still probably true, but it's probably a little less true. And there's a lo- definitely more room to discuss the nuance of of certain decisions. Like even if you still come out thinking that the greens are in the wrong, you can point to several things the greens did that were not wrong. Like you could say, okay, well this thing they're doing, and then of course with more time going by, that probably it might even balance out a little more. Maybe not, but. Regardless, they did such a good job of taking the characters that we previously disliked or thought were kind of flat and making them really strong, really three-dimensional. And repeatedly they did this. It was like it's amazing enough that they did that with just with Alicent. But they also did it with Amond. They made Helena more interesting. She's not really in the book that much, right? She's not fire and blood. She doesn't have a big role. So we feel a little sorry for Aegon too. Imagine that at this point in Fire and Blood. I felt sorry for Otto once or twice, which I was like afterwards. I was like, I felt a little dirty. Like, why do I feel bad for Otto? That's that's love you're feeling. That's desire, (laughs) disease, deep down desire. I had to auto correct. But we did get that nuance that we <laughs> were hoping, the nuance that we were hoping that we would get. And we were talking, while we were rewatching the episode or the finale, we were talking about the whole Amond scene when he does this thing, this terrible thing. And when you read it in the book, that's an evil act of war. <laughs> but when you see it on the TV show, he freaks out because he made a, a mistake, and the dra- the dragons did that. Like the the dragons kind of got away Ooh. from them a little bit, and dragons so did do that, or that dragon did that. That dragon <laughs> did that. So it just I have lots of thoughts. But the first one was I remember like at the very beginning um, of the series, it was like Team Green or Team Blacks, and we're all like, why would you need to pick a side? Like it's so clearly obvious who is. <laughs> we're, we're all Team Blacks, right? You got with their dad, you <laughs> lose, man. Right, and so. But, yeah, I agree with all of this. Just that color and nuance and just, like, the looks between everybody. This whole season added a thousand lines of dialogue, essentially, between all these different characters. And so it was well acted, and it was just, like, added so much life to everybody on screen. Real quick, I just want to remember something really funny. Okay, so I saw a poll, I think it was on Reddit, that was like, well, they tried to make the greens and blacks more evenly balanced by, you know, by viewers. It looks like they failed because the poll said like 83% black, 17% green. And I was thinking to myself, when I posted that poll on Twitter, it was like 91 to 9. So that is an improvement. (laughs) When we asked on our show. Everyone's hot. That helps. Yeah, it does help. But we asked on our show midway through the season if you were team green or team black. No, no, it was before that. It was, uh. It was before we met George because we told him about that. Well, we did both. We did both, oh, remember? Okay. We did that before we met 
George like way long ago, and then we did one about halfway through the season mm. as one of our midweek I questions. I can't remember that. What was the results for the second one? Probably like 60-40. Oh, it was 80-20 the first time. So it was almost yeah. originally what you got, what you just got as these. Exactly. Just to kind of add the evidence to that. I think Kristen Cole thing. really hurts the numbers of the Greens a lot, right? <laughs> He's just so pissed off about everything. So we're like, we're not going to support him. But you can also, if you are a Green supporter or even if you like Allison's deal or if you're an auto-apologist, an autologist, <laughs> um, then uh, you would probably like just write Kristen Cole off and be like, yeah, you need a bulldog that's, uh, it doesn't matter how he is. He just needs to be a killer. I was just looking at our uh, episode list for some reason a couple days ago and I saw a how mean one from two or three years ago. Well, we were talking about Hot D and uh, that's been a lot of time for us to think about Fire and Blood getting adapted for television. When you guys had this picture in your head, I know that I had one in my head cooking in there about how the next successor show was going to look or how Fire and Blood was going to look, how this era was going to look adapted for television. What did you see in your head? If you can if you can give me insight on a little glimpse that you saw in your head before you knew, and then um, how did that compare and were you disappointed or were you excited about what they came up with and ended up showing you. Definitely was very aware that there were major holes in the characterization and that, you know, just as someone who's very cautious about pop culture stuff, just a part of me was afraid that they would get it wrong. And I did not expect the show to get so many things so right. And I guess a bit of pessimism about you know what the show could be but i i think that it's for a lot of fans we feel that it's exceeded our expectations and that it wasn't just sort of a quick cash in on game of thrones quick what can we what can we throw together next to keep the numbers up i i didn't get that impression and it's a great show in its own right that could be watched without game of thrones and stands on its own two feet and as we've covered they 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 filled up these character holes so well, and I don't think that was easy. Yeah, you know, if you think about it, it happened all so fast because Fire and Blood came out in late 2018, and here it is 2022, and we've already got a season in the books. Like, that. that's fast, <laughs> right? Like, you think about it, like, it took, took a while to make the show, and yeah, so this kind of does imply some of the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that we heard about ahead of time that George made it more of a priority because, well, because this, there was rumblings of this sort of thing happening, and it's exactly what did happen. They they had already started thinking about what was going to be next before season eight had aired. And you know, since that time, there's been a lot has changed, COVID, and a lot of executives have been swapped out at HBO. But yeah, the, uh, the, the long, the... Yoke Boy's right, it could have easily crashed. And I, I was maybe a little more optimistic than he was, but I was there's definitely a lot of caution in in my optimism too, because it's like, yeah, well, just like everybody else, the last thing that we saw was season eight. So we're like, well, if they do it like that, and we had plenty of reason for optimism because it wasn't gonna involve a lot of the same people, right? Even, you know, even people who did a good job in season eight uh weren't gonna be included for the most part. So that's just with a whole new team, you at least have that reason to believe, well, it's whole new group of people. HBO's got a good track record. But yeah, really 
couldn't have expected this, and I'm so glad. <laughs> I just can't get it. Can't, can't say more about that. Just, just effusive praise. <laughs> uh, I remember being at Ice and Fire Con this year, and David J. Peterson said that he'd seen the scripts as the High Valyrian translator, and that he thought they were very high quality, and he wasn't sort of shilling. It was obvious he was being sincere. And at that point, I was like, oh, <laughs> we might have something really good on our hands here. He said it was just great writing, you know, which was like, okay, well, hopefully we agree with your taste on that. Because he had also, I don't know if you remember this joke, boy, right before he said that, he also said that he agreed with the show cutting Stoneheart. So I was like... <laughs> <laughs> maybe we shouldn't agree. Maybe we should. Uh, maybe I don't agree with David on what's good and what isn't. But but for the most part, no. You're you're still right, though. He was. It was clear he's being sincere because he's worked on a lot of scripts and he he's a critical guy. He's not going to hold back. He's he's an honest guy. He doesn't really. He's not a very like. He's not going to say something that isn't that waters down his opinion just to make people happy. So yeah. <laughs> when you can get you get straight dope from him, I think. Unless he got offered a lot of money, then. <laughs> well, you know, everybody's got their limitations, right? <laughs> you guys were is tepid the right word for oh, like in getting like in expecting expectations, nervous about it. I think I think I was more than tepid. I think I was excited, but and I was there was like, an, yeah, there was an element of fear, like this could yeah. suck. But I was overall excited because I figured it'd probably be good, and I didn't figure even if it wasn't great, it probably wouldn't be terrible. Right, like, and even season eight was heavily watched. So, like, from a you know from the business side, I'm like, well, this is going to be you know we're all going to get half something new to talk about, and, and hopefully it's not terrible because it'll be really painful to talk about. Pretend we like it, but if it's at least pretty good, that's all it needs. We only needed it to be pretty good. So, I, I that was part of my expectations. Like, oh, you know, like, am I worried it's going to be bad? Yes, but I don't need it to be great. I hope it's great, but I just hope it's pretty good. And it's definitely way better than that. <laughs> it makes me think about like. A BTS when we were podcasting and kind of be going through the slog of season eight, <laughs> we'd like get to the midweek rewatch and I'd be like, I literally cannot rewatch this episode <laughs> right now. Like I could just do the episode. We can do the podcast without needing to rewatch. To fuck the queen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but with House of the Dragon, I was always psyched to rewatch the episodes in the yeah, middle of the week. Like too. the rewatchability was through the roof. And so, from our selfish perspective, the fact that there was a lot of things to talk about, and we weren't just having to quote cool lines. No disrespect, because you know. That's what Owens are, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a success. Well, so my question is then, so success season one, loved it. We are unsure how long we're going to have to wait to get to season two. We haven't had anything officially announced yet. What are your hopes and dreams for season two? I mean, we've talked about, and George talked about how he could take four seasons, four seasons to talk about the dance for that to get the attention that it deserves. Um, we're talking about time jumps not being part of the equation anymore. What are your guys' hopes and dreams and thoughts about season two just from a vibes perspective? I think that there's a lot of potential because season one was only set in a few places, right? So season two can expand and show us more of the world, which everyone finds exciting. We're going to go to places that we've been in Game of Thrones, which is going to be a huge nostalgia hit. And there's also going to be new, you know, other places where we haven't seen yet. So settings-wise, we've got everything to look forward to. And as Damon mentioned, there are a bunch more dragons that we haven't <laughs> seen. And the whole 
dragon side of the story is just going to get more and more exciting and people are going to get more and more into it. And uh, that, that's going to be a, a big winner and a big pull for people, I think. Absolutely agree with that. There are a number of big action scenes coming in season two, which we we always appreciate, but hope they don't, you know, over-focus on. We want the story to drive the action out the other way around. And there's, I don't, I'm not worried about that, given how they've done things so far. Uh, but it is a, it is a curiosity I have how they're going to handle it. And I mean, there's, there's like, if you look at Fire and Blood, there's a lot of big budget items coming this season. So in terms of expenditures, like last night, George talked about legitimate versus was, illegitimate changes in a script. Horses and, and he, or what do you yeah, say? Horses are, or the tree, or the, 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 or the Stonehenge. Yeah. Stonehenge, yeah. So like he was talking about, <laughs> you we're doing a script that involves Roger Zelazny and he had to ask Roger Zelazny, like, which, we only have the budget for one of these things. Which do we do? Do we have the, the forest or do we have Stonehenge? And Zelazny took a puff off his pipe and thought about it for a minute and said... Stonehenge. <laughs> the, the best and, part there is that George was like, I don't know what to do, but I'm friends with the guy's thing that we're adapting, so I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Which is what we get the impression Condal does. We exactly. get the impression that Condal exactly. texts George and is like, exactly. hey, George, what would you do here? What's more important right. to keep? You That's know, so like, harmonious, man. Yeah. That's so nice. Dave and Dan were not texting George about these little things, I don't think. Like, from there, it doesn't sound like he was. Like, from either of their camps, don't Why report can't such a thing. be that way? Yeah. If it is, maybe get a show this good for four seasons. Right? Maybe more. So I'm really looking forward to, like, how they handle people's reactions to all this battle. Like, this is a big scene, a big part of season one was... No one here's fought in war. Mm-hmm. Like, with a few exceptions, there's a few exceptions. Damon fought in the Stepstones. Corlys Valarian's got plenty of battle experience. But for the most part, these guys who are clamoring for war, I don't know what they're getting into. And that's going to pre- create some really interesting character moments and, like, trauma and realizing I've made a huge mistake. And people who just have no control. Like, we're going to see lower-level commanders, like Matt said. There's going to be, we're going to see Starks. We're going to see more Lannisters. We're going to see uh, Stormlanders and, and Rivermen and all these other stuff. We might see... Iron Islands, we might see all sorts of stuff. The sprawl of the original Game of Thrones will be present in a way that it quite, hasn't quite been here. So that's really, there's a lot of characters within that. That's what I'm looking forward to is like, how is, we joke about the Muppet Tullys, but those could be really interesting characters, like despite their silly names, you know? <laughs> we could get like um, the, the women in the veil, Lady Jane and Jessamine and these other characters that are there. Uh, that could be really interesting. What are they going to do with them? Um, Young Reyna, are they going to change her story? Or is she just going to go to the Vale and live the life Allison said sounded awesome? <laughs> you know, like where she just has people jousting for her, trying to win her hand, and she's waiting for Dragon to hatch, and like she's having a pretty good time there. But that's a lot of characters. It's like I think there's more characters introduced in season two than we have had in season one. I think it's a larger amount are being added than already exist, which is kind of hard to think about. And it's like, wow, that's a lot of sprawl. So there's a lot of new characters that are in a similar state in Fire and Blood than a lot of the characters like we cited, Allison, Amond, Otto, whoever, that we didn't know a lot about. So many more characters that they can explore, and given how well they did these ones, I'm really excited to see how they handle different types of characters, like non-courtly, non-Targaryen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Is it possible that we connect more to the point of view of people that have never fought in battle before but may have access to the power of dragons than the truth of all of our relationships if you were to put yourself in the role of a character maybe your favorite character from watching Game of Thrones I like Ghost a lot but in the first episode I don't really relate to Ghost as a puppy <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying or even Ned or any of his kids really you know That's your point. but I think we can all sort of feel 
Eamon. We've all been kind of mad. And like, oh, shit. We've all accidentally yeah. killed him. <laughs> One of ours. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, is it possible? I know that it's almost insane. I bet that GRM would think it was insane, too, to even guess that the depth of the cast on uh, Fire and Blood could get as in tune with the universe as the Game of Thrones cast was. Characters like Arya and Cersei existing at the same time. The different direwolves and how everyone played off against each other. Then you have uh, Sala come off from the side, and you're like, "Wait a second, Sala or San's a real guy?" And those layers <laughs> keep going from there. I don't, I don't, I, I, can't, I can't say that even having read Fire and Blood a couple times, um, that it had that same resonance with, uh, uh, I guess, what everyone's looking for in TV shows and movies and books uh, as the first cast of characters did in the first series in mm-hmm. Asimov. But uh, that situation that we just talked about, that. Uh, sort of uh, innocence while dealing with the power of Westeros, even though it's before our current, or it's before Game of Thrones, our current Asimov storyline in time, it seems like it's a further ahead in conception of how us as an audience will interact with it. And he did write it later. And so he was a better writer when he came up with the Fire and Blood storyline. Like I said, the characters might not be Arya, but I think that we're probably at the beginning of how much people are liking Hot D especially uh, off the tail end of what you just were talking about, Aziz, uh, the the explosion of Westerosi content with through characters and locations that we're going to get in the next one. People are going to like that so much more. And the situation's going to fire off with the audience that watches it even more than the audience that watched Game of Thrones did. The only thing that we're lacking is uh, Arya maybe reading off her list and traveling with Yor, and that kind of thing is really hard to replace. We're not going to get that in Hot D. We're not going to get that sense of uh, uh, real organic uh, uh, differences in ages of our characters and traveling and differences of situations, but in how we relate to these characters fucking up an otherwise perfect world, everyone that watches that is going to relate. From the president down to someone watching it in a bar that doesn't have TV at their own house, they're going to be like, oh, I do that. (laughs) <laughs> it is definitely character wise I guess you have to accept that it's a different story and that the actual tone of the the writing is different in in both in both stories so yeah it's difficult to compare characters like Arya and Jon Snow and Daenerys you know cultural icons and some mm-hmm. of the best characters ever conceived so House of the Dragons just different and you know it's mainly within one family, and they they have all the power. So it's a different study. It's more like succession with dragons. I like to think mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> but like someone like Nettles, they have the potential to be a so huge much fan favorite so character on a yeah. level that maybe no one else ever has, just because yeah. of the scenarios in which these characters are engaging with. I totally agree. And and she quite potentially will be more relatable than even like an Arya. Who that's like, what I'm saying. Like Arya is. Uh, to be fair, Arya is extremely hard to stack up to. Arya is probably the most popular character from the book. It's like all of like our she's childhood. She's probably number one. Bottled up in her. There are potential characters that, you're right, that people can can embrace that we won't necessarily yeah. know. We won't see it yeah. coming necessarily. Right, that's what I'm trying to say. Because we don't know how yeah. they're going. Like, or how good season two is going to be. So right, we everyone, can, we, it could be just as rich as the yeah. original series, and boom, we got a new phase. We knew Arya was going to be big in the show. We are like, oh, look at that casting. That's perfect. Look at her. Maisie, that is an ass. Look at that. She looks exactly like what everybody figured. Like, 
she was one of the best castings amidst a bunch of amazing castings. So we could kind of predict that she was going to be popular. But it's a lot harder to do that with Fire and Blood because it's because of the source nature of the source material. You don't you don't you don't glom with characters the same way in a history book you do with like when you're in their head. You know, you see their feelings and their conflicts and all that. You really attach yourselves more to them. Well, if you take some of the action scenes, they they well, we've talked a lot about the characters, but look at the action scenes. What about Vagar? Uh, the chase scene that no one could have imagined it. So even in your imagination, you can't have imagined it being so perfect the way that it was paced and that the effects and the drama that, you know, exceeded what was in my head about that scene when you're reading the sort of black and white uh, tome of a history book, although it's exciting. If you look at some of the really actiony scenes in the Fire and Blood, they're over very quickly. They're in a, like one or two paragraphs, and they're they're done. You know, before before you know it, you, you you've finished reading it. And although it's a huge scene, there's not really that much description going on. With Damon versus Crab Feeder, what do you guys think about that? I thought it was it was pretty cool. I mean, I think there were some complaints about it, but I thought it was cool. I really? Mean, yeah. I mean, just. Not not big complaints, but uh-huh. there were some like the whole n- no arrows don't hit anybody kind of thing. Oh people yeah, people just couldn't find it a little. Oh yeah, find it too, too believable. Or oh whatever. for sure. But I don't. I I, lo- that I liked whole it a thing lot. felt like a trippy sequence. Yeah, I sort of wrote that off as an artistic expression versus real life survival. Yeah, it was just really it was really efficient, and I thought it was they needed something kind of outlandish to establish his reputation. Sure. Like that, he had that reputation in Fire and Blood for being a great warrior. He had acquired it and they have to show that like he put awe and like everyone who saw that, like, I mean, I'm not talking about the audience. I'm talking about his men who saw that were like, whoa. <laughs> like he may not be a great leader, nice face. <laughs> but if he's charging, you know, you can, you can follow him and expect it'll go well. You know, like maybe his planning isn't great, but, <laughs> but his, <laughs> if he's leading the charge, you're, you're doing pretty well. So I think that was pretty, that kind of makes him more like, like the Targaryens being closer to gods than men. You do something like that. It's like, we, we, in my show, we talked a lot about how it was, it was shades of like Achilles just carving a swath through everyone. No one could stop him. And, uh, especially given it was on a beach and all this other stuff, horsehair helmet, you know, fun stuff like that. <laughs> you think about Troy or like the myth? Yeah, that, but, well, both. Right. But, but it particularly, it's hard not to picture Brad Pitt's Troy because that's the one he that's seared like into that? our imagination. That what you're saying? And it was written by... Uh, Dave Benioff. By Dave Benioff. So, yeah, yeah I was like, hmm. hey, you know, it's funny thing about that. Like, right, what, that's, isn't that what... Okay. So you get to do the stock laugh and then record the reaction to the stock laugh. That's the the real laugh. Exactly. (laughs) The Uh, fake laugh generates the real laugh. Well, behind the scenes here. (laughs) We haven't had you guys on this whole season, and so I wanted to see if we can get your owns of the season. Your favorite part, favorite line, favorite scene, favorite character. We can make this really broad, but from both of you, kind of what your own of the season would be. Okay. Or the series. Maybe I, I gave myself way early, but own to Vagar for, you know, mm. his, for say, <laughs> satiating his hunger. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it just takes it back to the basics. We're all hungry. Not even a big meal, just a snack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, considering how large that dragon is, that wasn't really much of a meal. Like, he probably eats like 12 aurochs a day or something. <laughs> Probably not that much, but but a substantial amount of meat goes down that gullet per day. My own goes to casting director 
Kate Rhodes James. We talked about how much how great the cast was and how wh- how much they added so much to the story. So I, it, without adding naming one person, I, I don't want to name one actor. One particularly, uh, it's hard to name just pick one out of so much greatness. So I think this is the, a good person to pick in that sense. Um, My, your boy's still on the mic. Get that. <laughs> You're ready. In terms of like giving a own to so, to someone in the cast or crew. I think Paddy Considine. Oh, yeah. I, I thought, like, as he said, that there's a whole cast of amazing performances and there was very li- little, very little in the way of imperfections. But talking about pure perfection, pa- Paddy Considine's declining Viserys was fantastic. Every episode and every scene, he, he was perfect. I miss that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, we're going to miss guy. him, right? Yeah, if, if, I had to pick, if I did have to pick one, I won't. I'll pick two. I'll pick the, or really four. The the two <laughs> the, the actors that played Rainier and Allison. We we in our show we did a poll every week to see which one was best, and I picked them like seven or eight out of the ten times they won. Like Patty Considine won after week eight, but yeah, they were just so good. So they get the owns. They owned my heart. <laughs> All right, owns for the final episode of Hot D season one. From at Street Savage Cole on Twitter, my main own goes to the huge ass table of Westeros getting another cameo and for all the amazing uses and shots they got out of it. Secondary own to when Damon refers to Aegon as the drunken usurper cunt of a king. That was just absolutely glorious. Hashtag Ghost Kills Ollie 2K16. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Never forget. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next up, we have uh, Hugo Castellano says, own to you and Mitchell slash Aemon Targaryen for actually making belie- making me believe that he didn't mean to do what he did at the very end of the episode and just wanted an eye for an eye. From at McGarrity, man, I don't even know anymore. Um, owned Queen Rhaenyra, first of her name, through the lowest low, rising higher than ever, fighting to keep the realm from plummeting into bloodshed. And then that last look says it all. Incredible. My house knows no ruler but the rightful queen. Owned to Corley's for his halftime motivational speech moment. It was straight up Friday Night Lights. Clear eyes, <laughs> full hearts. Can't seven. Final on of the season has to go to this episode and show as a whole. Everyone involved was on a whole other level from beginning to end. After a full season, I feel confident in proclaiming this to be the better, this to be better than peak GOT. Mm. Long live Hot D. Okay, this one is from Boyd at Boyd's 12.12. Own to Storm's End, where no matter what the weather's like when you arrive, it will be effing bananas outside when you leave. Hashtag Hot D Finale. Yep. From at Brento Box. Own to Otto, because damn, those balls are huge. <laughs> I was going to say that. Amanda Taylor at Sokia Amanda. Do we have owns or we just or do we just have tears? My poor sweet Luke and Arax. My own has to go to the painted table lit with fire. I wonder if Melisandre knew it could do that. Man, talk about information lost in time over ages, guys. <laughs> if they would have known that whole time those little cubby holes weren't for scroll or storing parchment and scrolls. <laughs> You'd throw a candle in there, guys. <laughs> From at Abnaura, owned to that glimpse of Vermithor and his fiery entrance to Damon's song. Can't wait to see the Bronze Fury in action next season. Hashtag Valyrian Spotify playlist. Hashtag Fire and Blood. Hashtag Sing Me a Song, My Prince. Hashtag 2K22. Hashtag Hot D. <laughs> Sir Book Sage at Sir Book Sage, owned to Arax for being a true dragon, trying to protect his Targaryen and taking his shot at Vagar. When it was there. 
That's a good one, although I'm not sure about the consequences of that. Cell phone. Eric's just thought, he was like, this is just, we're having fun, right? <laughs> what if he'd roasted Eamon and that one pot oh shot? My. That would have been an excellent little been, puff. Yeah. And then, uh, then he gets several owns. <laughs> you could have ended the war right here. At Troy Tim, owned a Luke. He didn't back down. Eloquent Adventures owns to Rhaenyra for throwing a funeral and a coronation at the same time. <laughs> At Black Madness 317, owned to my future self, justifying every atrocity Rainier and Damon commit for the rest of the show. <laughs> Stephanie Brightback, owned to Emma for making me cry just from watching the back of their head when she found out about Luke. At Aswaf Quotes, GOT, owned to Storm's End. I've been waiting to see it in all of its glory for years. At Crash 2K18, owned to Rainey's. I was salty AF that she didn't light them up last week, but she made a good point about not being it not being her war to start. Also, her reactions all episode. Oh, you're counting on my dragon? Fingernail <laughs> polish emoji. <laughs> From Carolus Coy at Coy Vin- at C. Vinazi1620. What's up, Coy? My own goes to Eamon for the sweet, sweet gemstone. That lovely sapphire. Democracy Diva says, own Tyranes still standing when everyone everyone else on Dragonstone has knelt, unbowed, unbent, unbothered. <laughs> <laughs> At Erica Kiana, own to Sir Eric for being the man Sir Kristen wishes he could be. <laughs> Jason Alden, own is Tyranes for finally telling Corliss to get off his high seahorse already. <laughs> nice. At Riles the, Riles the Lion, owned to Viserys for being right about dragons. <laughs> nice one. At J. Denari Duff, owned to Ramindradi's score. The music in the map room was fire. Oh, yes. And our last one for this episode. At Crimson Grits, Rhaenyra got owned. Been at Dragonstone for years and didn't see it coming. Also, own to Amon for being the only person who ages. <laughs> <laughs> so Aziz, well, as we're closing out, can you tell us about the uh, the mystery surrounding uh, you and Mitchell and uh, how perfectly it uh, it continues to carry that Euron slash Amon lore forward? It really does do that, doesn't it? He, he, he because of him appearing to be older than his older brother uh, Aegon he people have been wondering how old he is this man has pulled off a very difficult thing he's been in Hollywood for a while he was on the show Last Kingdom and that wasn't the first show he was on he's been on things before that The Last Kingdom had five seasons and it wasn't a once a year show so it took many <laughs> years to run so this dude so we don't know how old he is and we tried to figure it out couldn't like he's kept his age concealed online. It's it's a hidden fest. Well played. Own to you and Mitchell for somehow hiding his age in this day and age um, from the public, despite being on several huge budget TV shows. He's just managed to keep to keep that quiet somehow. Uh, hopefully, maybe he'll it'll be maybe in ten years we still won't know and. Maybe he'll look like he hasn't aged. And be like, oh, he's the one who hasn't aged. We had it backwards. He was the only one who looked like he aged, and now he's, I don't know. He's going to look really old. What does a sapphire <laughs> do to you? Like, does, that, right? does that make you age a slower? A necklace, an eye. <laughs> uh, thank you both for coming on our show. It's been so much fun to hang out with you and to spend time together and to talk hot D. It's been a lot of fun. So why don't you let everybody know, both of you, where folks 
for some reason, don't know how to find you, let them know where they can find you. Okay. So I'm from podcast Radio Westeros. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. And we also have a YouTube channel, Radio Westeros, where we do live stream reviews of the the House of the Dragon. Obviously, that's not going to happen for a while, but <laughs> come and subscribe. Thank you. I'm Aziz from History of Westeros, and you can find us in the same places that Yoke Boy just said you can find Radio Westeros, except you want to search History of Westeros. But after you've subscribed to Radio Westeros, you can come over to us. And we're also on YouTube. We're on anywhere you find podcasts. And yeah, we'll be doing plenty of stuff in the off-season talking about different characters, looking at their their arcs and stuff from the books. Uh, yeah, it's a bright future for this fandom. And thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye.